Uh, my name is Adam. Um, I'm here to present my study, which is um, sorry a bit about me. I'm recently started a senior clinical training scholarship at the, in Small Medicine at the University of Cambridge. I actually did this project at the University of Bristol when I was an intern, hence why the slides are all University of Bristol, just to help with conclusion there. And I'm going to talk about my retrospective study entitled Investigating the Use of Gastroprotectants as a Means of Preventing Iatrogenic Gastrointestinal Signs Associated with Immunosuppressive Corticosteroid Therapy. Um, so a bit of background to this um, is that steroids are kind of generally widely used and everyone here probably knows their side effects very well. Um, in the main, they're quite benign, so sort of polydipsia, polyuria, polyphagia, that sort of thing. And very rarely you can get more fatal side effects, such as gastrointestinal perforations and things like that. Not very common, fortunately. Um, and in, in a lot of cases where people prescribe gastroprotectants to try and prevent these sorts of side effects, um, uh, I have interest, who, who here tends to do that routinely? So, yeah? Two couple people there? Yeah? Um, but at the present, there's not really much in the way of evidence base to say that that's of any real use. Um, so the aim of this project uh, was basically to look at the frequency of the GI signs after giving immunosuppressive doses of steroids. And there's lots of anti-inflammatory doses that people might use, but I've really looked at that immunosuppressive dose. Um, and I was basically looking to see if the use of gastroprotectants in those cases was actually associated with reducing the incidence of gastrointestinal symptoms. So, um, being evidence-based medicine, this was a single-center retrospective observational cohort study. And what I did was I looked at the referral records from a university teaching hospital uh, between September 2009 and September 2015. And I was looking specifically at primary immune-mediated disease, so I kind of narrowed down my population a little bit there, um, who all received immunosuppressive doses of corticosteroids. So that was defined as an equivalent dose of one mg per kg per day of prednisolone or more. Um, adjunctive immunosuppressants was allowed because some patients, patients were receiving cyclosporin and azathioprine and other things like that. Um, but specifically, I was excluding patients with IMTP because they are prone to kind of bleeding and things like that. Um, and if they'd had gastrointestinal signs in the preceding seven days. Um, also, if we didn't get an actual diagnosis, I exclude them because there could have been all sorts going on there. And if the medical records just weren't sufficient to kind of, for me to kind of find out exactly what went on with those dogs. Um, and for the purpose of this study, I specifically designed gastrointestinal signs as vomiting, regurgitation, diarrhea, and hematochesia. Um, the idea being that, um, so I suppose a lot of my slides haven't actually been present. Um, sorry, uh, vomiting, regurgitation, diarrhea, and hematochesia, um, because they were kind of very objective, very easy to define clinical signs that you would see. So obviously there's lots of things like anorexia and other lethargy and things that people might use gastroprotections for, but that's, there's a lot of factors in the hospital that might lead to that to happen, which is why I didn't look at those. And the dogs were all placed into three groups. Um, so there's a gastroprotectant group, which was dogs who received prophylactic gastroprotectants, which was started at the same time as their immunosuppressive dose of steroids. There was the post-exposure group, um, which uh, were dogs who didn't have gastrointestinal signs, but they received gastroprotectants after starting the, the steroids. Um, and then there's a no gastroprotectant group, dogs who didn't actually get gastroprotectants. Um, and all the data was analyzed with um, statistical software. And we looked for normality using histograms and Shapiro work test. Um, we also analyzed data using chi-squared analysis and we used significance of p-value of less than 0.05 data is presented as median or with the range because it's not normally distributed. Um, so I sort of realized that a lot of my instruction background slides haven't come up on here, so I just go back to it at the end of my discussion probably. Yeah. 
Um, so the results we got is we had 127 dogs included. We had quite a variety of diagnoses in here. Um, so we had um, 58 dogs diagnosed with SRMA. We had 28 dogs with IMHA. Can you just tell us what they start for? Yes, sorry, yes. <laughs> so SRMA being steroid responsive meningitis arteritis. Um, IMHA being immune-mediated hemolytic anemias. Um, 31 dogs had IMPA, immune-mediated polyarthritis. Um, MUO, nine dogs, which was meningoencephalitis of unknown origin. And idiopathic lymphadenitis, where was one dog affected by that. Our median age was 18 months of, median age 18 months old. Our age range was four to 144 months. Our hospitalization time was five days. That had quite a marked variation from just half a day up to 25 days. So there's quite a lot of range in there. And the median prednisolone dose was two mg per kg with a range of one to 4.4 milligrams per kg per day. So in our, if you break down the groupings, we had 63 dogs in the gastroprotecting group, 13 dogs in the post-exposure group, and 51 dogs in the no gastroprotecting group. And if you break it all down, they sort of receive various combinations of those. But if you put it, put it down in total, 22 dogs had a H2 antagonist, so things like ranitidine, semestidine, that sort of thing. 60 dogs received a proton pump inhibitor, which is essentially just a meprazole for the purpose in the study from our records. 32 dogs received sucralfate, um, and they were using, again, multiple combinations. Um, so if you look at it, overall, 26.8% of dogs, so 34 dogs out of 127 in total, developed gastrointestinal signs. Um, of those, it was eight dogs out of 51 in our no gastroprotecting group. So 15.7% of dogs who did not receive a gastroprotectin at all developed gastrointestinal signs in the study. Um, overall, we had 30, and there were overall there was 26 out of 76 dogs, so 34% of dogs who did receive a gastroprotectin overall um, did develop gastrointestinal symptoms. So this was found to be a significant difference between the groups. Um, which is interesting. Um, so we have that in this is made up more specifically. Six three dogs were in the gastroprotection group, kind of who just received it prophylactically, not the post-exposure group. 28.6% um, got GI signs. We had um, the post-exposure group was 61.5% developed GI signs, which is interesting because we don't you know. There's lots of reasons why they might have started gastroprotectants, which we might not have addressed in the study. Um, but this difference was not statistically significant between the two groups. So, and when you remove the post-exposure group, there was no significant difference between the gastroprotectant and the no gastroprotectant group. So, um, I just realized that they kind of chopped off a lot of my kind of um, introductory slides. Um, essentially, the bit of the background work that has been done before now um, was sort of aimed to look to support this finding. So if I was going to go back to my introduction, if that's okay. Um, and Effectively, the background work that I've found that's been done in this, there was a study um, done in 1997 um, where they looked at the use of kind of various like cimetidine, sucralfate, or misoprostol in preventing GI hemorrhage in dogs having spinal surgery. And they concluded that there was no benefit to using gastroprotectants in preventing gastric hemorrhage in dogs. Those were dogs who received large, rather large doses of methylprednisolone before going, undergoing surgery, sort of in the order of 30 milligrams per kilogram as a big dose and then they subsequently received kind of half doses for kind of two to four hours later on. Um, it's quite hefty. Um, there's another study kind of published um, by, where they found that misoprostol wasn't effective in stopping 
GI hemorrhage um, after surgery, after methylprednisolone again, um, in dogs having spinal surgery. Again, they use quite a high dose, probably more than what you use clinically at 30 milligrams per kilogram. Um, more recently, there was a study from the RVC by James Swan and others who found that GI dogs, they were busy observing patients in a critical care setting to see how many developed hemorrhagic gastroenteritis. And using gastroprotectants, they also found it significantly increased your risk of developing those the symptoms of just having them, essentially. Um, and that would be supported by the results of, of my project, essentially. So gastroprotectants were not associated with a lower incidence of GI signs. Um, the results would actually suggest that you may have an increased risk of developing gastrointestinal symptoms by using them. Um, and the exact mechanisms why that would happen aren't entirely known. Some of the GI protectants would actually cause GI side effects as an iatrogenic effect. Um, and it's likely that there's kind of lots of things kind of going on there. Um, but essentially what these results would suggest is that we should be a bit more careful in kind of how we just prescribe gastroprotectants in dogs receiving steroids because you may actually not be getting a benefit there. Um, in this study, we allowed dogs having immunosuppressives other than prednisolone to be included. So some of those, like particularly things like cyclosporin, are also associated with diarrhea and things like that. So not many dogs in the study actually received them, but I can't rule out that that didn't play a role in upsetting my results, essentially. Um, there's also kind of other patient factors. So some dogs were given gastroprotectants in the study in our post-exposure group simply because they were inappetent. And again, that's a very vague symptom. Were they inappetent because they were having GI ulceration and needed the gastroprotectants help them? versus were they inappetent because they're in a hospital and they didn't want to be there and they didn't want to eat uh, what we're offering them. So that's something that we yeah, can be able to kind of address there. Um, the clinical judgment as well comes into things as well. Um, you know, obviously, I'm just looking at records. I wasn't there looking at the patient at the time, so you know, it's entirely possible that the clinician kind of saw something that we're not aware of and that kind of influenced their prescribing, um, prescribing factors. Um, and we, again, hospitalization, hospitalization time was very variable. We do not know, you know if those patients got diarrhea when they went home or not. We didn't look at that. So if the patient was only in the hospital for a day because it had a face rate for presentation and it went home that day and got GI signs the next day, that wasn't recorded as an effect in the study. So that could potentially bias my results. Um, but overall, it is actually kind of worthy of consideration. I think based on the back of these results, it would be worth doing a prospective trial to try and validate these findings further before we extrapolate that too far into the, into the clinical setting. Um, ultimately, interestingly, there's not, I couldn't find a huge amount of work done in humans, but in humans, they kind of say that ultimately the decision lies with the clinician. Um, they, there is a suggestion that gastroprotectants aren't necessary in human medicine in, in people having high dose of corticosteroids unless you are at a particularly severe risk of getting GI symptoms. Um, I did find some work where they talked about how it might kind of reduce kind of the severity of regurgitation things in critical care settings, but then there's also evidence that shows that gastroprotectants increase your risk of getting pneumonia, so that's a bit off on a tangent. Um, but it would suggest that gastroprotectants aren't completely benign, which is what, I guess, when, you know, when I was in practice, I generally perceive them as very benign things that, you know, you can't do any harm with them, whereas clearly there may be more going on with it, essentially. So, in conclusion, 26.8% of dogs receiving immunosuppressive doses of corticosteroids developed gastrointestinal symptoms. Gastroprotectants did not reduce the incidence, of, the incidence of gastrointestinal signs in this study. And there are references, and yes, apologies, my slides got mixed up, but thank you for listening.